Hi everyone, this is Zach Elliott with the Paradox Institute, and today we have our first ever interview. This one is with Dr. Patrick Lappert, a renowned plastic surgeon and retired U.S. Navy captain. He is interviewed by Cynthia Brainy, our Communications and Design Director for the Paradox Institute, and they'll be talking about the ethics of cosmetic surgery and the ethics of specifically gender-affirming care and the malpractice associated with that. So I hope you enjoy this great conversation. So how did you get into this whole gender debate? Well, it's a, it's a long and providential road. I, um, I'm, I'm a physician by training, uh, a general surgeon and plastic and reconstructive surgeon. The majority of my professional life was uh, serving in the United States Navy, which I did for 24 years. Wow. Um, and uh, essentially, you know, devoted my whole life to that. And then at, since getting out of the Navy in the private practice of plastic surgery for another 20 years. Um, wow. So, yeah. And, uh, and, and a whole breadth of, of experience, including, you know, large institutional residency training programs and multidisciplinary reconstructive surgery teams. We took care of combat trauma, cancer uh, patients, uh, all kinds of pediatric, adult, chronic wounds, congenital deformities, mm-hmm. hand injuries, all that stuff, uh, which was a great blessing to be able to to learn that and to do that for so many years. I retired from surgery about two and a half years ago. I still have a medical practice. Um, the way I got into this subject was, so as we were talking about before here, I'm, I'm a Jew by birth, uh, mm-hmm. grew up uh, really as an atheist since age 12. Mm-hmm. I was an okay. atheist until age forty-one. Um, wow! Yeah, and then and then I was received <laughs> into the Catholic time. Church. I was baptized, um, wow. baptized, and and now I'm an ordained deacon of the Roman Catholic Church. So, wow! Yeah, and so it's been it's been a, a most unusual That's quite a journey. I've been married yeah. to my wife for for forty-two years, and wow. um, yeah, and uh, so so not long after I was ordained. I, I went to a conference. I was invited to attend a conference on the subject of same-sex attraction. It's actually a retreat for people who experience same-sex attraction but want to live a, a life of chaste love, chastity. Want to live chastity okay. as okay. as you know, Christian virtue that we're all called to. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in the course of that meeting, um, I was invited sort of to participate in this Catholic apostolate called Courage. And courage is an apostle of the church that serves people who are trying to live chastity, which is everybody in the church is trying to live chastity, you know, according <laughs> to your station in life. But in this case, predominantly men who experience same-sex attraction, but men and women. And I went to a, a, a an annual conference up in Villanova. And in the course of that conference, uh, there was a, a breakout session for for clergy. And in the course of that breakout session, having a sort of free-ranging discussion, one of the priests there uh, opined that mm-hmm. one day the church will catch up to the science and we will recognize that that man's sexuality, gender presentation, all that is a spectrum of naturally occurring examples of normal human life. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I heard that and I and I offered fraternal correction. <laughs> I offered <laughs> the science, you know, as as I know it as a as a biologist, physician, surgeon, taking care of humanity for the last 40 years, mm-hmm. 
I offered a, a contrary opinion, <laughs> a more, <laughs> more established truth, let us say. Anyway, after okay. that conference, one of the, well, the leader of that organization asked, said to me, Deacon Lappert, I heard there was a, a brisk discussion. Would you mind putting together a presentation on the, on the present science, the evidence of what, what, what is this transgender business all about? so that we could better inform the clergy, so that the clergy could be better formed in this condition and provide more meaningful care to people who suffer with this. And obviously, there is a lot of suffering over this, tremendous amount yes. of suffering, so yeah. that the church has an obligation and all of that. So he asked me to put together a talk. That was back in 2014. And and wow. since, the, since the first time I presented it, the calls for offering some version of the talk has been... Have, about twice a month, I travel to give presentations wow. to teachers, school administrators, uh, you know, okay. parochial vicars, bishops, and others. And then that that doing that has also drawn me into the world of being an expert witness in court, defending okay. or refuting the assertions uh, involved in legislation protecting children from yeah. gender affirmation care. Right. And what's the scientific yeah. basis of that? So I present as an expert witness, as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon on that many cases up to now. And um, so, yeah, yeah. That's, how I, that's how I got here. Now we're seeing uh, more court cases come up from detransitioners. Um, Correct. Yeah, we've one moved. recent one is uh, specifically, I think, not just suing for malpractice, but suing for a conspiracy to right. commit fraud or something like that. Yeah, that um, case that was yeah. just recently submitted by Campbell Miller and Payne on behalf of that mm -hmm. poor young young woman who uh, is suing the American the Pediatric Society yeah. as well as the hospital, as well as the providers, all of them. Yeah, it's, and so we've gotten to the stage now of personal injury law. We have up to now. The, my involvement has been in the defense of legislation or the defense of executive decisions by governors and attorneys general concerning the protection of children. Yeah. And, uh, and that's sort of been a mixed bag, but at the appellate level, it's now going in the correct direction, you know? The, yeah. So um, before we get into the questions, I have to ask, did, have you looked into like the, for your talks and things, since you said you've been doing this for such a long time, have you like looked into the history of, trans surgeries and things like that, like gender affirming surgeries. And, oh, yes. And oh, yes. And a okay. detailed examination of that. It's sort of been a running wow. thing I've kept track of since the earliest days of my training in plastic surgery, because when I was looking wow. for a residency program to train in back in the 80s, early 90s, um, you know, you, you examine what the different training departments do in different universities and things and see what's a better fit for the life ahead for you. And I remember seeing mm -hmm. that there was a program at, at uh, University of Virginia where there's one uh, surgeon who was providing these services. It was a sort of a onesie twosie and he, maybe a little here, maybe a little there, but you heard about it. And I mm -hmm. sort of keeping remote track of it. But that mm -hmm. all changed. That all changed back around 2012. Suddenly it became a big thing and a very big and yeah. public thing. And so that caused me to re-examine it. And obviously with the request to put together a talk, I've looked at in depth. And I've also examined in depth the, the scientific evidence that proponents of affirmation care use, and mm -hmm. which they'll even use in courts of law, sworn testimony, expert opinions. So they're presenting the very best they have 
in support yeah. of affirmation care. So I get to read that because I'm the expert witness on the other side of it. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, a, and a detailed examination, now it's been a running examination for the last you know nine years, uh, shows that it is of the lowest quality scientific evidence, what we yeah. call expert opinion. And expert opinion is mm -hmm. only as good as the value of the scientific evidence that supports it. If it's just a man's opinion, well, that's interesting, but that only informs a possible experiment. It cannot guide right. surgical and medical decision-making. So what they have is sufficient evidence to craft an experiment, but they most certainly do not have sufficient evidence to guide the care of children, particularly if what they're proposing is irreversible medical and right. surgical and irreversible, partially irreversible psychological effects of doing this to children. Yeah, even with adults, I'm starting oh, yes. to really, really walk back a lot of my stances. I used to be more of the mindset of, you know, as long as you're a consenting adult, but the standard of consent yeah. has really been low. It is not anywhere near what we would generally consider informed consent. I mean, yeah. I, I had wanted to go into medical school and become a plastic surgeon originally. I couldn't really? because at the time, I, yeah, I had a spinal injury that um, I'm now healed from, but it really held me back from being able to pursue that at the time. And like it, I, I loved, <laughs> so weird. I loved watching surgery videos. And I loved like reading about surgeries. Like that was actually yeah. one of the things that made me realize like, oh, I don't want to go through with this for me. Like, this is not something that I want to do to my body. Um, and so that put me on the path of dealing with my gender dysphoria a different way <laughs> with yeah. therapy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's totally different. Like the, the standards are so, so different for gender affirming care than we apply to even like lip injections or <laughs> like oh, yeah. anything right. like that. So yeah, yeah the, the, the whole issue of consent uh, is, is one of the biggest issues of all in terms of the liabilities that these physicians, these hospital systems, these insurance plans, all of them, academia especially, because academia mm -hmm. is at the root of all of this, um, the, the liability that that presents in the whole process of, of uh, obtaining consent, because the, the key elements of consent have to do with how thoroughly you counsel the patient or the guardian of the patient, how thoroughly you counsel them in terms of what is the diagnosis, how certain are you of the diagnosis, how do you propose to confirm the diagnosis, and then what are the mm -hmm. options of treatment having established that? And, uh, and all of that's missing, all of that's missing because the diagnostician in this irreversible stuff they're doing to, to children and young adults, the diagnostician is the patient themselves. There's mm -hmm. nothing that's done by anyone mm -hmm. along the course of care that confirms or validates the diagnosis. All it is is the patient says things, and typically they're saying things that are highly rehearsed because they have been yeah. socially transitioned to believe mm -hmm. that their sorrows, their anxieties, their sadness are the result of some actual condition of disconnect between their interior imaginative life and their bodies, which is yeah. a, a remarkably weird thing to introduce into the world of medicine. This idea that right. humanity is essentially a spirit being that occupies bodies that may not be the right one, whatever that means. Yeah. That's not even yeah. science. That's not medicine. That's stupid. 
It's unsupportable. And all yeah, of that's it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so when, mean, you talk to, when you talk to a parent yeah. or you talk to a patient about doing irreversible things to them, because you think that by changing their appearance, you're going to resolve this interior wound. Yeah. Brother, you better have some pretty strong evidence to support your position. And they have no such thing, which yeah. essentially renders consent untenable. And here's the, here's yeah. the other capper to it is that very often consent, or as they like to say, assent, when they're getting children to assent to the surgery, mm -hmm. uh, they're essentially making a claim that they're going to resolve this issue through changing their bodies and, and, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and, and lacking any scientific evidence for that, it's, it's, uh, it's entirely unsupportable. And here's the other problem. They typically will insist that surgery is needed because of the risk of suicide. They'll say, right. you know, we have to do these things. Otherwise, your child has a high probability of killing themselves. And they'll say these right. things in the presence of the child. And yes. they'll speak to the parent and the child as if there's such a high risk of self-harm and death that we must proceed down affirmation. So the children start to rehearse in their minds that they're at risk mm -hmm. of self-harm, even if they'd never thought about it. Right. right now they think, well, I have to follow up because I might not feel that way now, but there's a high likelihood I will. So I will go down this road. So essentially they're obtaining consent under duress from the parents. Yes. yes. And the child is incompetent, first of all, to offer consent. And even if that child ages out and becomes competent at 18 years of age, essentially the threat of suicide is still the premise for doing mm -hmm. it, right? That the risk of suicide is so great, we'll do this dreadful thing to you because death is more dreadful mm -hmm. than what we're going to do to you. And essentially, if I any any patient who is self-described as suicidal, by definition, is incompetent to give surgical consent. Wow. End of story. End of story. If I'm proposing yeah. an operation that's that's not life uh, saving or limb saving, you know, somebody comes in and, and they're just asking for an operation, like, let's say, fix my nose. And in right. the course of consenting them to, to change the appearance of their nose, they confess to me that, gosh, Dr. Lappert, I am really glad that you're going ahead with my rhinoplasty because those other surgeons didn't understand me. And I'm kind of at the end of my rope here. And I'm so glad you're going to change the appearance of my nose, because if you didn't, I'd probably kill myself. I would immediately mm -hmm. stop what I'm doing yeah. and say, I can't possibly do this operation on you because you're suicidal. We need to get you help for that. And if after yeah. we've resolved this interior sorrow that you think is going to be fixed by changing your nose, well, come back and talk to me. But yeah. I can't do your surgery because you're incompetent to give consent. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, so let's go ahead and address these questions that were submitted. So the first one is, are there any other elective cosmetic procedures that are comparable to those associated with gender affirming care, such as sex reassignment surgery, orchiectomies, or mastectomies? Okay, this is, a, this is a very important place to begin, uh, Cynthia, because we, we must begin with distinctions between what's mm -hmm. called reconstructive surgery and cosmetic surgery. That's the great sort of dividing line. Sometimes it's not a really bright dividing line within the world of plastic <laughs> and reconstructive surgery. Anytime we right. as plastic surgeons do any operation, like whether I'm reconstructing a hand or reconstructing a face or whatever, function is the first order of business, restore function. And in the course of restoring function, we aim for the best aesthetic result we can achieve, right? So it isn't just that you, you reconstruct a nose to, so that air can be 
cared for as it enters your respiratory tract. But as mm-hmm. you do it, try to make a good looking nose, would you please? Yeah. So so we always <laughs> we always have yeah. we always have an eye for form and function. It's the two mm-hmm. elements of our incarnate life, you know. Things have form and things have function. And and they're beautifully melded together. It's the truth and the yeah. beauty of the human person, right? That's that's mm-hmm. okay. So so that's that's the first thing. The operations that are done in transgender surgery are all operations that I have done. For example, mm-hmm. um, recon- changing the appearance of somebody's nose in the course of reconstructing their nose. Somebody comes in because they have nasal obstruction, because their nose was deformed when they were passing through the birth canal. They've had a, a mm-hmm. crooked nose ever since adolescence because as their face grew, that, that disfigurement became apparent and they're obstructed on one side. So I'm doing a mm-hmm. functional operation to get his breathing right and I'm straightening out his nose. And all and that's that's all wonderful and good. I have done, you know, uh, genital reconstructions, you know, penal and scrotal reconstructions on people who had fulminant infections of their around their genitalia and their groins and their mm-hmm. lower abdomen, a condition called Fournier's gangrene. These are these are very complicated operations sometimes, but the techniques that are used, the, the flap operations, uh, the transposition of soft tissue to create you know, a, 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 a neophallus, a reconstructing mm-hmm. the phallus, reconstructing the urethra within the structure. All of those things, those are, those are operations that a reconstructive surgeon, especially like, like, for example, my department at Portsmouth Naval Hospital, we, we reconstructed the lower limbs and the pelvises and the groin areas of two of the victims from the bombing of the USS Cole. Something that happened when, before you were born, probably, but but there was a Navy warship <laughs> in the Gulf of Aden that was attacked mm-hmm. with a bomb-laden small boat, and and in the course of this tremendous explosion, there were sailors standing in line waiting for for morning meal, and and it oh. exploded right under the deck they were standing on, and the force of that just oh shattered gosh. legs and the, all this oh. stuff. Anyway, that operation or those operations essentially use all the same techniques that transgender surgeons use when they create de novo, a, a, mm-hmm. a counterfeit penis, a counterfeit scrotum, right. all of those things are operations I know mm-hmm. how to do. I've just never castrated somebody so that I could do that. I've just never destroyed their reproductive ability in order to do that. I've never destroyed yeah. their erotic provocability so that I could give them a counterfeit penis, right? Mm-hmm. There's a distinct difference. Here's the important distinction between cosmetic surgery and reconstructive surgery. Cosmetic surgery aims itself at the restoration of form and function, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where that has been lost due to trauma, due to cancer care, due to congenital accidents in utero, whatever it may be. So there's an objective deficit, an objective poverty that we characterize, and then we aim ourselves at the best functional and aesthetic reconstruction we can make. Now, cosmetic surgery, on the other hand, is the modification of appearance in the service of the subjective life of the patient, okay? I'm giving you a a, a more attractive nose because it annoys you every time you're getting ready to go, I don't know, whatever it may be. If I can do something simple to solve a daily annoyance, I'm gonna offer you that, but I'm gonna look very carefully at your motivations. And so Mm -hmm. a a good cosmetic surgeon turns down a lot of patients because the last thing we want, the last thing we want is somebody disappointed or, or the last thing we want is to do the wrong operation, all right? There are mm-hmm. psychological conditions that plastic surgeons meet up with all the time. Body dysmorphic disorder is what most people now understand, but it's, it's, a, it's yeah. something we're trained in because very often people will come to you seeking a remedy 
for an interior wound that they, mm-hmm. they dare not look at because it is such a profound wound, they don't want to see it. But they feel their anxiety, they feel their sorrow, they feel their sadness, and they want an explanation. They want to be able to understand their sorrow, so they ascribe their sorrow to their appearance. They'll say, the reason I feel alone and isolated is because I know when, when people are talking to me, they're always looking at my nose. And I know if my nose was smaller, more defined, I would have more friends. I, I might even be married by now. You see, mm-hmm. you see the difference. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this, these expectations of total resolution of profound sorrows through cosmetic surgery is malpractice. It doesn't yeah. matter whether it's the the facial appearance or if the child or the person thinks that their sorrow is because their genitals look wrong. It's the mm-hmm. same mistake. And it's malpractice. It's that simple. It's malpractice. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely seen a lot of plastic surgeons dropping the ethics. I oh, mean, my. Yeah. Like, no, it, I mean, yeah. you, you go on, on TikTok and you see trends of people like, glorifying like these really exaggerated breasts or really exaggerated like features and or shaving parts of their face it it's really out of control compared to what i remember when i was wanting to become a a plastic surgeon um so that's very concerning not just for these trans surgeries but just in general right it's it's really sad to see so many people trying to find an external fix for an internal problem. That's correct. And it's and it, it, what's become particularly difficult for them, Cynthia, is that in the last 10, 15 years or so, the life in which people are growing up has now become so image saturated and people have developed this idea and it, they've been encouraged to develop this idea that their identity is a performative identity. Yeah. That they that they have to present themselves as something and they have mm-hmm. to do it convincingly. And the more convincingly they do it, the more affirmation they'll get. Affirmation right. is the key word in what they're offering to these sorrowing people who yeah. are offering you affirmation. Right. And that's what everybody's looking for because they've got mm-hmm. this idea that their identity is something that they have to produce. They have to right. produce and they have to be really good at it in order to be happy. Yeah. And if you're not really good at it, well, maybe you need more medication. (laughs) Maybe you need a different operation. And then maybe then you'll be really good at it. And Mm -hmm. and this is, I call it the little theater from hell, what they're doing (laughs) to children. That's what it is. I mean, you're not only telling a child that they have to make up their identity, but they they have to craft a story about themselves and they have to get real good at telling the story. Oh, I've always known that since I was three years old, I've always thought, and, and, and they have these adults that are encouraging them with these obsessive ideas and the obsessive mm-hmm. ideas will lead because that's a, that's a very effective way to manage anxiety for a while, right? Mm-hmm. You have an obsessive thought in which you find safety by doing certain things. You know, if I do, right. if I, if I dress this way, if I wash my hands this way, if I do this before I go to bed, it, it becomes an obsessive compulsive process, which is what gender, gender discordance, gender identity disorder, whatever you want to call it, that's how it's always been understood. It's it's a mechanism by which particularly little boys manage some anxiety or fear. It may have grown out of an actual trauma, but more commonly it grows out of a misunderstanding the little boy has about family dynamics. This, yeah. this misinterpretation, well, if I look more like my sisters, my father would love me more. Or I, if I was looked more like my sisters, I would experience less danger and risk because of what mm-hmm. appears to happen to boys. Things like that, you know? Yeah. And, and and historically, almost all boys, and historically, they outgrew it. 
in, yeah. in adolescence, when they see their bodies changing and they see that, you know, life isn't so fraught with dangers as they thought. And by the time you yeah. reach young adulthood, 92% of them have gotten over what was a simple anxiety management problem, right? Mm -hmm. They needed guidance with, they needed cognitive truth to understand their condition yeah. and ways of managing their anxieties. That's what historically works. That's what the treatment always was. Yeah. But now instead, what gender clinics are doing is they're helping them to rehearse the obsessive thought. Yes. They're not helping them manage the obsessive thought by offering truth. They're saying, oh, let's run with that obsessive thought. And here's some help in crafting that. Here are the words you can use. Here are the mm -hmm. things you can do, the way you can cut your hair, the way you can use your voice, dress, yeah. story. All of that stuff is a, is, a, is a created personality to serve an obsessive compulsive process. Mm -hmm. And as with all obsessive compulsive processes, at the root of it is a delusional thought. That there's yeah. a delusional thought that, you know, if I if I if I don't leave this light on, such and such a thing will happen. Or, you know, right. yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, it, it's the same, it's the same process, but now it's 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 been industrialized. Now you can make yes. a lot of money doing this to people. Yes. And whereas really your duty to... is yeah going back to to tiktok and things like <laughs> there's been criticisms of you personally um by like pink news and glad and things oh, like sure. that. And <laughs> one of one of them was that you you're not capable of diagnosing gender dysphoria so you can't do these <laughs> surgeries and i yeah. thought that was particularly funny because <laughs> neither is dr gallagher who's all over tiktok saying, you know, let's eat the, the teats and whatever and the, doing that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's odd that they give a pass to their their gender yep. affirming doctors, but not yeah. to you that has all of this experience and you have done surgeries where you've sure. reconstructed and, genitals. And, 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 like and, and obviously to complete that thought, no one can diagnose gender dysphoria. It's hmm. not that I can't diagnose it. Nobody can, because gender dysphoria isn't a diagnosis. It's an expression mm -hmm. of a sorrow that somebody has. The diagnosis is not. See, gender dysphoria, that word was introduced some years ago in the revision of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, which mm -hmm. is the bird watching guide for psychiatrists and psychologists. Essentially, it's a descriptive. It's like a it's like a, a bird watching book. You know, they describe mm -hmm. things and they use words. And, and the words that they use are crafted by committees, typically small committees of advocacy people. And so some years back, they, they wanted to remove gender identity disorder from the DSM-3 or DSM-5 and uh, because they wanted to depathologize the condition. They wanted right. the, the world to feel that transgender is a normal expression of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to depathologize it. The problem with depathologizing the, the diagnosis in the DSM catalog is that you need a diagnosis in order to bill third-party insurers and Medicare and Medicaid. You got to have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So they needed words that sounded like a diagnosis, but had no content. There's nothing in there. Gender dysphoria is like, yeah, you're unhappy about the way you present yourself sexually to people or the way people interpret what your sex is through your gender. Which Remember, gender itself is a performative identity. Yeah. Right. And so it's a very fluid thing. I mean, having mm -hmm. long hair and wearing a skirt and being emotionally sensitive in our culture is considered most likely to be a woman. But right. I've just described Braveheart to you. <laughs> right. Long yeah. hair, a skirt mm -hmm. and emotionally sensitive guy. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the gender presentation is a very culturally malleable thing, but what underlies it is, is the truth. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and gender presentation is aimed at the successful meeting up of men and women so that you can generate the next generation. You know I mean? yeah. they're, they're generative. Gender, uh, uh, what's the word? The, the, the gender, uh, the, the manifestations of gender in a culture mm-hmm. are, are sort of the habit of that culture and they keep it because it works. It helps, mm-hmm. it helps adult manage the meeting up of their children together so that they can marry and bring along the next generation. So the boys know what to do because the girls are dressed this way. They're singing this song. I'll put on my hat. <laughs> I'll meet you at the quinceanera. You know, I don't understand mm-hmm, it yeah. now because I'm only eight, but by the time I'm 16, <laughs> like my big brother, I'll understand it. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah, people, that's true. People's innocence can be protected, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. People often bring up third genders from other cultures, and it's such a self-defeating point because a lot of times these third genders or cultural genders outside of male and female are often kind of like a, like an exclusive lower caste of people right. exactly. that are kind of like, I guess demoted to like, oh, you're you're too feminine of a boy, so that means you're going to go work with the women, and you're going to have a lower station. We're going to treat you like a woman, but you're because you're not really like good enough to be one of the boys. Or in other cultures, um, I think it's a Polish Polish tradition is well, if you're a woman and you want to own property and things like that, then. Well, you're never going to be allowed to marry. You can have the title of a man so that you can own property, but you can't ever be in a relationship or have children or what. So, yeah, it's it, that's not progressive. It's not a good thing. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, there's there's no question that 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 stereotypes, gender stereotypes, can become very rigid and ossified things, mm-hmm. and we can lose track of the of the real uh, purpose of these, these, these cultural traditions is in the service of the person, in the service of the family, in the service of the, of the community. And uh, yeah, when they get like really stringent and straightened and, and oppressive, then they ought to be reexamined, certainly, mm-hmm. but, but to throw them all out, right. Yeah. Uh, root and branch. They're, they're, yeah. There are idea. averages. There are exactly. averages um, of sex differences that are expressed in behavior. Exactly. And- things that draw boys to certain things and things that draw girls certain things. And um, it tends to be more conducive to their learning environments and makes them more happy. And um, we've seen boys struggling in school a lot because we're wanting to shift public school teaching more towards an environment that's conducive to the way females learn. And boys have a lot more trouble because they've got all that pent up energy and need to go run around. More. Yeah. 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 You're, you're talking to a guy so, who dropped out of high school at 16. Wow. He I couldn't take it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so, I mean, understanding those, di- those differences on average can really, I think, be helpful to people. Yep. That's the so. thing. Exactly right. So, so if you look at a, at a particular behavior presentation or whatever, you know, a preference for, combat sports versus preference for you know parlor games you can you can have a bell-shaped curve and find female on one side male on the other side but the areas of broad overlap are huge on, mm-hmm. on most of those things on yeah. most of those cultural things you know preference yeah. for artistic things preference for you know musical yeah. theater i don't whatever you want to talk about there's <laughs> overlap there's great overlap there mm-hmm. and so but you cannot 
you cannot lock somebody into a quote unquote gender, lock them right. into that because you think because at age five, he preferred to do imaginative play using dolls because it's mm -hmm. helping him understand things or manage anxieties right. or things in his life. Preferred the playing with dolls. You can't look at that boy and say, oh, yeah, that's a transgender female. Exactly. That's a horrible thing to do to that boy. Yeah. As, as horrible yeah. as it is to, to, to tell a girl who, who likes to play with, with construction equipment in the, in the sandbox that you'll never be happy if you keep pursuing that. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. stupid. It's a stupid thing to do. Right. Someone, I forget who it was, said that uh, gender is whoever's doing the dishes is the woman. <laughs> like, yeah, that's about where we are. <laughs> um, I washed a lot of dishes. <laughs> yeah, professionally even. I washed dishes in restaurants. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Sure. So uh, let's see, back to our questions. The next one is, what might make a surgery unethical in general? Okay, excellent question. So there's a, a, a number of things. Essentially, when you, when you ask this question of ethics, what you're, what you're asking is questions about the good of the person, right? The, the good of the person that you're serving here and whatever you propose to do for them. So and understanding the good of the person is, is an objective thing. It isn't, it isn't a subjective, ethereal thing. There are objective realities about what it means to be a human person that to violate those realities is a disservice to that person. Okay. Just as surely as encouraging them to do things that harm themselves physically, you know, hey, you know, you should take up smoking or you should take up, you know, bungee jumping, uh, you know, <laughs> There, there are things that, that, that you can look at objectively and say, this is good to do for people. This is not good to do for people. So, and there's broad areas of overlap. So you could take something as trivial as coloring your hair. I mean, you're, you're going to change a woman's appearance or a man's appearance for that matter by coloring their hair. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a time when to color your hair, you'd have to be Pharaoh's daughter because henna was a very pricey thing and generally mm -hmm. nobility could, or the only ones who could afford to color their hair. So for an average woman in a family in ancient times, for her to aspire to change her hair coloring would be an, a very unethical thing to do because she'd be taking food out of the mouths of her children, massive mm -hmm. disservice to the yeah. family, all in pursuit of some selfish aim. That's an unethical thing. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, of course, you can stop at the Walgreens on your way home, pick up some <laughs> hair coloring, tone up your hair, and nobody says yeah. a word about it because it's a low, low risk, low price, simple thing mm -hmm. to do that gives some subjective improvement in the life of that person. And aesthetics, the, the beauty of things, is a human reality. That's a human reality. Right. You know? That's, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so you can take even the simplest things and ask an ethical question. Right, depending on the circumstance, is it is it intrinsically immoral to color your hair? Well, obviously not, but it can mm -hmm. be immoral if you're robbing food from your children. You, know, right. you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Now yeah. there are certain things that are intrinsically immoral to do, right? The the mutilation of a person. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, mutilating a person is robbing them of human faculties, robbing them of human right. capacities. Uh, in the service of what? Is it in the service of you making some money? Is it in the, mm -hmm. some misguided idea about what you think will make them happy while you're making money? Yeah, 
even right. even totally legitimate operations like a rhinoplasty, like we talked about, uh, it can be unethical to do a rhinoplasty on somebody like we talked about before, who th- imagines that their life will be transformed from one of utter sorrow to one of total joy by getting this nose job done. Mm-hmm. That is unethical, right? It's yeah. unethical to offer surgery to people you know have body dysmorphic disorder, which is what I just described. That's unethical. Yeah. Uh, even if the operation is trivial, because what's what's mm-hmm. being offered to the patient is a promise of a happiness you can't deliver. That's, that's unethical. That's, yeah. that's an unethical thing to do to somebody. Right. And yeah. it's interesting that you should bring that up because um, we have a friend who whose father is a plastic surgeon, and we were originally going to to ask him to do this <laughs> interview, um, and. I got into a debate with this friend over body dysmorphia and where the line is for doing plastic surgery and, and um, like lip injections and just cut more cosmetic, strictly Mm -hmm. cosmetic kind of things. And he actually brought up that, well, if it can make somebody's body dysmorphia, like go away just a little bit, then it's fine. And well, it's better that somebody like my dad does that, even if it isn't super ethical, because it's he's going to do it well instead of them going to a surgeon who's going to botch it or something. Yeah. And it, I was like, wow, is that where we are now? Is that where the line is? Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, so there's a danger always of falling into a situational ethic to serve yeah. something that isn't true and good and beautiful. And this is the reason mm-hmm. why, you know, a daily examination of conscience, particularly if you're a surgeon, I'll tell you what, I mean, can you imagine any human activity to compare to being a surgeon where people entrust themselves to you and what you're proposing is to, is to actually harm them in the hopes of producing a greater good. You're taking sharp objects, right? You're cutting them. Yeah. You're moving things around. You're exploring in their abdomens. You're opening their chest up. You know, you're opening in their face and their neck to solve a cancer. What a trauma, whatever it is. This is there's nothing like that in the human experience. And so That's there's a, a level, there's an, a level of, of ethical conduct. But more importantly, the bigger picture, there's there's a necessity for self-examination in everything, in everything you're doing why you're doing it, how you're doing it, the details of how you're doing it. You don't want to screw these things up because you were careless or because you were, you know, had something right. better to do and you just decided to do this. You can't be a surgeon and think that way. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I recall a, a story from a few years back where a girl, she turned 18 for her 18th birthday. She wanted a breast enhancement. And so she went and she saved up all her money from the previous summer and her parents told her you have to pay for it yourself, but we support you. And so she went, she got it done at an outpatient clinic mm-hmm. and she ended up in a coma like forever because the, the, the anesthetician um, noticed that her vitals were dropping and things like that. And they didn't call emergency services right away. And wow. she ended up um, just, wow being stuck comatose and her family was trying all these different um, surgeries and things. And I remember actually like it really upset me. I ended up going and looking for some kind of procedure. I sent it to the family um, to try and help her. It was um, 
with some kind of brain surgery or something that was still pretty experimental, but it was, I mean, what else can you do? What a disaster. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think the cheaper and more common these things have become, the less people see it that way, that you are trusting strangers that you don't have a relationship with at all. Like these aren't people that are in your community. These aren't, this isn't your regular doctor. This isn't like people at a hospital. Like these are just dudes at a, in an outpatient clinic um, who are cutting you up and putting you out and (laughs) you're trusting them that it's going to go well. So, yeah. Well, you know, a, a breast augmentation is among the simplest operations that plastic surgeons do. These are like entry level cosmetic surgical procedures that junior residents are doing in resident clinics all throughout their training. They're they're not a complicated operation. But as I learned early on in my surgical training, there's no such thing as a small operation, only Mm -hmm. small surgeons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so surgeons who don't take the gravity of their work seriously are sometimes anesthesiologists who don't take but ultimately, the surgeons responsible, particularly if it was an outpatient clinic, may have even been in their own office. But what that anesthesiologist is doing or, or nurse anesthetist is doing is really the responsibility of the, of the, the surgeon of record. Um, right. So, you know, peculiar and disastrous things happen. And but that's part right. of what goes into surgical consent in, in, in my surgical consent form for breast augmentation. It includes a discussion of anesthetic risk. you got to have that in there. But even so, um, what a horrible story that is, gosh. Yeah. So I I think about things like that. Like when I see these young people going in and getting these extreme procedures, way more extreme than like a mastectomy is way more extreme than like a breast augmentation where you're getting things like that. Certainly. So, yeah. Yeah. The key, the, the, the key things about the comparison there is that breast augmentation surgery is a 100% reversible thing, although you may have some mm-hmm. sequela, some, some leftovers that may remain, like a, a misshaping of the skin or, or a, a, a erosion of the ribs a little bit under the implant and stuff, but it's reversible. Uh, but, but chest masculinization, as they like to call it, taking mm-hmm. you know, healthy females and mastectomizing them. Uh, that's a that's a seriously in, uh, aggressive and invasive and irreversible thing you're doing. You're robbing them of the faculty of breastfeeding, and typically mm-hmm. in the course of doing the operation, because they use free nipple grafts. You know, they they yeah. they take the breast mound off, they remove the nipple, and reapply it to the chest wall as a free full thickness graft of, of nipple skin. You you render not only you lose the ability to breastfeed, but you've separated the nipple from the fourth intercostal nerve that supplies the nipple, that has direct communication to your hypothalamus, your pituitary, that produces oxytocin in response to stimulation, that not only allows the breast to produce milk, but it's part of the erotic arousal that mm-hmm. that serves to bind the two in the sexual embrace. You rob the yeah. person of that, they'll never get that back either. Mm-hmm. As an example of how poor the science is that's used to support these terrible things, the the director of the transgender pediatric services at University of Southern California uh, published an article, which is quoted in the proceedings of the federal courts and stuff as being a, in support of chest masculinization. That article has absolutely no scientific basis to support its efficacy. There's nothing oh, wow. to, to demonstrate its efficacy. And the paper that that she produced 
is of the lowest caliber of work. I'm talking about how she selected the patients, the questionnaire she produced, the, the use of the patients to write the questionnaire. You're talking about adolescent children writing questions right. that are going to evaluate the results of surgery, please. Oh and gosh. yet it's presented in a peer-reviewed journal. And she has the temerity to say that, well, if girls have their boobies removed and they change their minds, they can get their boobies back. That's how ignorant that woman is. It's ignorant of the yeah. realities of what the surgery is doing that she is referring children to get. Yeah. Director it, of a gender clinic. Yeah. I've heard that so often. You can just go get implants. And it's like, that's not the same thing. And further, if a person has detransitioned and now they regret the surgery and they feel traumatized by like medical groups and surgeons and everything what do you think the last thing they're going to want to do is go back to a surgeon, go right. back on the table and go through another surgery? Like that has to be terrifying. Oh. Yeah. Yep. So it is so unethical. Yes. To clearly act like you can just, Oh, psh, it's not a big deal. You can just go back and have more surgery. Like every surgery has a cost as I'm sure you're aware. Amen. <laughs> and uh, there's a cost to anytime you go, under anesthesia like it so it, it's a trauma to your body every time you do this and it is crazy to me that they treat it like it's not a big deal like that's yeah. not the case well there's certainly a lot of money to be made in convincing the public that this is easy peasy and we'll even have a finance yeah. plan and if you don't have the money we'll solicit public funds through your state medicaid offices and we'll, or we'll compel insurance companies to provide the funds to do this to you. Yeah. yeah. Or you can just go set up a GoFundMe or I've even seen yeah. it was a, a pamphlet online that was directing girls to do sex work to pay for their masculinizing surgeries. Yeah. That is a common and, thing. There's uh, a common, and that's one of the, you know, historically, in the last 20 years or so, the, the coincidence of physical sexual abuse with the, with the self-diagnosis of transgender, uh, young people getting caught up in this world of prostitution in order to get funds so that they can pay for the hormones or, or the surgeries or things like that. And yeah. the, the harm that they come to obviously is, is inconceivable. It's terrible. Yeah. It, it's such a toxic, toxic thing that they're doing to these kids. Um, well, and these young people in general, because not just kids, I have yeah. friends who had these surgeries done in their 20s, yeah. and now they're getting very frustrated that, well, it's not just kids. Like, what about people like me? What about people in their early 20s? What about people in their 30s who bought into this too? And now, like, what? We're, it's so what? It's just, we were stupid or, and yeah, it's, especially when you're in a vulnerable place, it's very totally. easy to be. Groomed that's and exactly that's exactly it, Cynthia. Because you're talking about vulnerable people, people who have experienced some some degree of trauma, some actual uh, possibly sexual trauma, who may have a they have a thirty percent likelihood of being on the autism spectrum. They have a, a, a near forty percent likelihood of being diagnosable as major depressives, who have a history of self harm, who may be self medicating with alcohol or or drugs or or whatever that may be, and, and are so clouded mm -hmm. in their thought process by this interior anxiety. And, and they're being offered this, this absolutely dreadful, dreadful care called affirmation care. Huge disservice to the human person.
because it's contrary to the truth of the human person, the true, the good and the beautiful that it is to be a human being. Yeah. Um, So let's see, going back to our list, um, what restrictions are there for extreme procedures like really large breasts? Like I, I know that there are restrictions on how many cc's that you can do for a breast augmentation and things like that. But I don't think the general person knows that, especially with things like we talked about with TikTok and you see some of these influencers with the giant beach ball boobs and things like that. Um, So what are the restrictions that are typically common with things like that? Well, so that's a common operation, um, breast augmentation, or another one would be perhaps liposuctioning, say, for example, liposuctioning. There are actual physical limits on how much liposuctioning you can safely do to a person without hospitalizing them, for example. Those are objective realities about what mm-hmm. happens when you do large volume liposuctioning on something. This is probably what killed Kanye West's mother was was that really? very thing. Yeah, you know, they has have oh. liposuction, massive liposuction, and then get dropped off at a hotel room or wherever she was staying. I forget where it was. It might have been a private residence, probably was, mm-hmm. uh, without sufficient nursing attendance there. And uh, and she what we call third space fluid left her circulation to fill this injured space. And so her circulating blood volume declines. This is what happens with massive liposuctioning. And if you're not volume resuscitating them with IV fluids or something, their blood pressure will start to drop off until they lose consciousness or, or maybe don't have enough pressure to fill their coronary arteries and they die. So that's yeah. an objective limit to what you can do in terms of liposuctioning. There are objective limits to breast augmentation. Uh, you know, y- you can use, uh, you know, a, a, say a 500 cc implant on a on a on a woman who is say five foot eight, who has an asymmetry of the breast, and you're trying to correct an asymmetry, right? You, mm-hmm. you you have actual volumes that you're trying to match there, and a woman of that stature, a 500 cc implant wouldn't surprise me, but if it was a five foot tall, you know, 82 pound, slender slender young woman. To put a 500 cc implant in her would be a stupid thing to do because the likelihood of a complication goes sky high when you start doing yeah. that, right? The, you might develop what's called a mono breast where you've mm-hmm. the space you created communicates and now you've just got this sausage across the chest or all kinds mm-hmm. of bad things can happen. Yeah. yeah. So, well, so there are the objective integrity. limits to what you ought to yeah. do. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the integrity of the skin can only go so far. Correct, correct. Yeah. And um, I've seen too, like with BBLs that get out of control and they end up like hitting an artery or something. And like, oh gosh, it it gets crazy. Um, And And, and one of the the super large breast augmentation kind of patients, they typically get there by degrees. It's not a single step that you can go from Mm -hmm. nothing to, you know, basketball size breasts, obviously. It, It goes through repetition. And that repetition is is one of those red flags that you're dealing mm-hmm. with somebody here who's trying to resolve an interior sorrow by continuing yeah. to change their appearance. So they thought yeah. breast augmentation would help in terms of how they feel about themselves. It helped for a while, but it doesn't seem mm-hmm. to be helping now. Perhaps I just need to go bigger. Yeah. And so they'll keep coming back. So a plastic surgeon who's worth you know, anything at all should look at that patient and say, (laughs) you know, we need to have a conversation about what's really driving this. Because first of all, your first operation got a beautiful result by all, you know, human measures of proportion and safety and all of the things that go into surgical planning. You got a home run result here. Why do you want more surgery? 
And then they'll start right. voicing something like, well, you know, I thought that it would help my relationship with my husband, but he, it's not helping. And so for me to offer her yeah. another operation would be like to promise her that her husband's going to love her if she has bigger breasts. Right. That's that's malpractice. And that's mistreating yeah. the patient. And so that's one of the that's one of the breaks on how big do you want to go? Well, yeah. How unethical do you want to be, sir? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And we've also seen things like um, rhinoplasty, like addiction sure. and collapsing because the cartilage can sure. only support so much. Same thing with cheeks and chins and yes, yes, exactly. Like that. When I give my presentation, one of the presentations I give, I'll include a series of photographs. They're you know public domain photographs of Michael Jackson. Yeah. You can follow Michael example. Jackson from when he was in the Jackson 5, a beautiful little boy. You can follow him through the series of facial aesthetic procedures, especially his rhinoplasty. Just follow it along mm -hmm. and you can see exactly this process of body dysmorphic yeah. disorder writ large on a very public face. Right. And yeah. how that is, a, that is a disservice to Michael Jackson before right, everything yeah. else. A huge disservice to that poor man. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Have you ever turned down a procedure? I think all the time. All the time. After yeah. we've talked, I do it all the time. What, what starts out as a cosmetic consultation turns into a pastoral visit. So that brings me to an interesting question. It's not on the list. If so, you're you've talked about how that's something that's very common. Is surgeons are kind of encouraged to turn down procedures from people who are clearly body dysmorphic. Um, how, what do you think is happening? Is it just that there's the surgeons have become less ethical? Is it hubris? Is it an ego? Like what's going on yeah. that we're not seeing that happen anymore? Yep. That's the single most important question you could have asked. And I'm glad you asked it because what's happening is that this idea of the human person that is being presented in gender ideology this idea that 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 identity is something that's created and that that the that, that the most important element in that identity is the sexed presentation the gender identity as they like to call it that the most fundamental thing about a human person is the way they think about their sexed self and how they present themselves that whole idea is a novelty that grew up in academia it beginning you know, maybe in the 1920s, it was a harebrained little thing that was trickling through the German academia, found its right. way to the new world. And it was just sort of puttering around out there as, as, a, as a sort yeah. of interesting but sort of unimportant thing. Why? Because you're talking about, first of all, the, the, the population affected was two in 10,000 children, virtually mm -hmm. all of them boys. So two in 10,000 children, virtually all of them boys, of which only about 8% of them would reach adulthood with the persistence of this idea. So you're talking about a vanishingly small mm -hmm. population segment there that tends to aggregate in urban centers near universities, perhaps. But anyway, yeah, it, it wasn't what we would call a, um, uh, what's the word they use on the internet all the time? You, you couldn't turn it into an enterprise. You couldn't turn it into mm -hmm. a thing because there were so few patients you could barely study it anyway. Uh, yeah. And so you hardly heard about it. But that changed as this, this idea of performative sexual identity has trickled down through academia. And it's all the teaching materials right down to kindergarten level now. But the yeah. doctors are growing up in that world. The doctors are growing up in a world where their medical ethic is informed using political language. 
that right. use political language about uh, aggrieved minorities and that they have a duty right to the to mm -hmm. the, the good of society to offer these services and the language is all it's all political language so they grow up in the world of medicine imagining that one of their duties is to champion a political ideology in the service mm -hmm. of a particular person and that has become a financially very lucrative thing to do so now you've got kids growing up in the medical world working as clerks in their clerkships you know third and fourth year of medical mm -hmm. school maybe spending time in the surgery department in the pediatric endocrinology department where they've got their their trainers their teachers are speaking the same way this political language right. and and they lose sight of the fact that they have diagnostic obligations they have therapeutic obligations that they need to attend to well they just dismiss all that saying well you know we have to be open-minded you can't be transphobic you can only affirm and off we go so all of a sudden there's a massive amounts of money in it massive yeah. amounts of money and you and you you get comfortable giving the right answers to your superiors who are training you if yeah. they say, oh, yeah, no, uh, transgender affirmation is scientifically based. And you hear that every day. You go, oh, it's scientifically based. And I'm yeah. real busy right now. I got five more patients to see. I got to get back exactly. to the attending surgeon and follow him through cert, whatever. And by the time they come out of that program, they haven't given any thought to it. But they've fallen into a way of life, a way of practice that their elders taught them was good. I, I think that's true for a lot of people right now. No one has the time to look into this. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so, and by the time you come out of medical school, you have tremendous debt. By the time you finish yeah. your residency, you haven't paid that debt off at all. And so you arrive at your professional life that you've trained for all these years with a massive burden of debt. Now you've got a job and it's being run by computer. And the amount of time you spend with the patient is measured. And you have basically wow. a, a, a pick you pick this answer. If they say this, this is the, the, the treatment that you offer. Ugh. You got to get through the visit. And before you know it, the patient's come and gone and they've mm -hmm. been pigeonholed into a treatment regimen and he's too busy to ask the question. It's a yeah. terrible way to grow up as a doctor, the worst yeah. way to grow up as a surgeon. Yeah. I just <laughs> did an article about one of the, the women who advises the who and things like that on gender, um, affirming care and how to help transgender youth and blah, 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 and wrote uh, the guidelines for um, AIDS in transgender youth and this and that. And her ideas that she, I watched a I watched her give like a talk in a video um, to one of these groups. She is bonkers. She was suggesting that sex isn't a thing. Like it's not a physical thing. It's just some idea that's not based in reality and yep. that every patient should just have a checklist that they go through of right. their anatomy with their doctor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Personal autonomy and, and the checklist. So it's, it's a person with a uterus. It's a person with a vagina. This is what the doctors are, are, are being told to do. Doctors in training is, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not women. They're persons mm -hmm. with front holes. They'll actually use right. words like that. Yeah, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And and the more you speak that way, in it, the more likely you are to get a tenured position at a major university now, because you're the public face of all this money that's flowing into this department to 
produce these services and make right. the universities massive amounts of money, inconceivable yeah. amounts of money. It's, it's crazy. I was looking at the the amounts of money expected from each patient because it's for the, it's for the rest of your life. And yeah. they know that creating these obsessions in these people, like it's chasing a dragon. There's never going to be like a point where you're like, a hundred percent comfortable. Really? Like I, I used to think there was, but having the friends that I have who are trans, I've seen it where they've, they were comfortable for a little while. Right. And then all of a sudden, well, now it's not good enough because now I think my voice is doing something I don't like. Or now, uh, now that I'm looking at it, I think I am looking a little too masculine. I need to go have such and such surgery or mm, I was comfortable, but now I think I do need the sex reassignment surgery or whatever. And it, it, it's scary because it doesn't, it's not based in reality. And I've had some of them tell me, no, there's nothing you can say to make me feel better about it. Because you don't hear it, I hear it. And it's like, yes, I, I know because I was in your shoes. Yeah. And yeah. that like you have to realize like this is it's not sustainable. Like it's crazy. You're gonna hurt yourself like yeah. if you keep doing this. That's right. That's that's so. what that's how affirmation messaging works. Affirmation messages work because they work. You to give an affirming message to an anxious child, they'll feel better. If you tell yeah. them they're brave, if you tell them they're beautiful, if you if you promise them that they're going to be happier when they craft this new personality and dress this way and act this way, if you promise them that, they're going to feel better. And, and the parents are going to think, well, we're on the right track because they're doing better in school. Well, affirmation messages work even when they're lies. Children feel mm-hmm. better even when you lie to them with your affirmation messages like, oh, right. keep trying, honey. You're going to be an NBA star. You know, your little you know, smaller than average boy is never going to be an NBA star, but he'll feel better for a while and he'll practice his free throws. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that'll happen. It helps for a while. It helps mm-hmm. for a while until the reality creeps in and then it doesn't help anymore. And then right. so you go to the next step. And that's why that's why this is really it's the transgender treatment industry, because yeah. you, you, you bring people in at one end and it's it's just predictable that they're going to progress down to the next. Why? Affirmation makes you feel better. High dose testosterone yeah. will make you feel great. Yeah, Boy, that's what you, I've heard. You take an anxious girl who's hiding from her classmates because she's starting to turn into a girl and she feels vulnerable sexually because she's looking more and more like a girl. You give her testosterone, it ain't nobody going to scare that girl. She's probably yeah. going to pick a fight. You know, yeah. she'll get euphoric. She might do better in mm-hmm. school. She might be more socially integrated because that's what androgens do to your brains. You know, this yeah. idea that nothing can stop me now. Well, yeah. you haven't cured their, their gender dysphoria. What you've done is you've given them a side effect of high dose sex steroids. Right. And the gender clinics will say, tell the parents, see, it's working. She's doing better in school. He's doing better in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But really, they just gave them a stimulant, essentially. Exactly. And, and you're seeing a side effect, which if you watch it long enough, will turn into pathology. Women right. given high dose testosterone. Have a, are 10 times more likely to be incarcerated for committing violent crimes than age, sex, match that, controls. Yeah. It's yeah. a fact. It's a fact. Yeah. So the next question is, have you ever questioned what you're doing? Which I think they, they maybe thought that the plastic surgeon we'd be talking to was somebody who was doing gender-affirming surgeries oh, and things yeah, like yeah. that. But 
But to answer Just, briefly, I, mean, yeah. I, I question what I'm doing every day. It's like what we were talking about before. <laughs> you have to examine every yeah. detail of what you're doing when you're a surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> because if you're not, you're a bad surgeon. No small yeah. surgeries, only small surgeons. Yeah, that's true. Do you think you're promoting harmful attitudes about self-image? As a plastic surgeon, you mean the kind of advertising that plastic surgeons do? Yes. Yeah. Excellent question. That's a really excellent question. And because that that fits into that whole idea of, of, of false hope, false optimism, a promise of the what is actually unachievable. These plastic surgeons that, for example, will advertise outdoor billboard ads for liposuctioning, and they'll have a, you know, a 20 foot high image of a, of a woman's torso that looks, you know, like a 15 year old yeah. volleyball player, 15 year old volleyball <laughs> yeah. player that has never darkened the door of a plastic surgeon's office. Yeah. But right next to it, it says smart lipo, laser liposuctioning, you know, you mm -hmm. see a sign like that. And, and that's, yeah, that's a bad thing to do. That's a very bad thing yeah. to do. This, this false promise was, did I answer the, the question that you asked? Or did I go off <laughs> on a side tangent there? I think that answers it. Um, yeah. Do you, like, but yeah, I mean, it is a question of like, am I promoting harmful beauty standards? Is it yeah. too far? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. And it isn't just the doctors that are doing it. Obviously, it's the it's the people, everybody who, you know, from the yeah. people who sell hair care products to the people who make clothing, to the people who make movies, That's to true. the people who make, you know, music videos. Yeah. All of the, everybody's wrapped up in this. Why? Because we've bought into this terrible idea that yeah. that the human identity is a performative identity that mm -hmm. serves the subjective life of the person and nothing more that there's no yeah. identity to be found in the reality of the person themselves and the truth the beauty and the goodness of the person uh they've thrown all that out why well because that's where the materialist worldview comes from the mm. materialist worldview that says that humanity is really nothing more than a, a, a really inconceivable series of accidents and that yeah. there is no reason to be here and that the only reason is whatever you can create for yourself rather than looking into the world and asking yourself well how did i get here why am i here you know yeah. you know who am i serving what what we talked about before the show the, the finding mm -hmm. the peace that you find when you give yourself for the good of other people that's where you yeah. find true human identity. That's yeah. why people, women find identity in motherhood, whether they actually have their own children or in the motherhood they offer even to strangers. That's where men find their identity in fatherhood, whether they're married, single, whatever. There is a, a sense of fatherhood, paternal care that we can offer mm -hmm. by giving ourselves for others. And as with all yeah. things, the attributes of those two things overlap. There's an overlap between the maternal goods and the paternal goods. But that's what it means to be a human being. We're, we're made for the other person. That's what yeah. our genitals tell us. That's, sorry, but <laughs> let's, let's digress here. Let's digress here. Every part of your body, every part of your body can explain itself. If, if you were a visitor from outer space and you came to the earth and you're examining life as you find it here and you find human person and you start examining that mm -hmm. human person, you can deduce that, well, those eyes, obviously they're photosensitive and they're connected to the occipital cortex and, you know, they explain themselves, yeah. the heart, one-way valves, yeah. contractile tissue, fluid moves, blah, blah, blah. You get to the genitalia and they don't, they don't explain themselves. They don't make sense <laughs> unless you have the complementary other. Right, yeah. Without the complementary other, they do not explain themselves. So the first thing you can understand about that 
is that that body is made for another. Yeah. Right? Our, our bodies scream that fact that we're made That's for true. other people. In the in, in ultimately, you know, the life giving yeah. embrace of human love. That's what we're made yeah. for, among other things. You know, obviously, well, some people don't marry and have children, but yeah. but that's an example of of yeah, our nature. That's true. Of like, people do this weird thing where they're like, "Oh, it's just genitals." Oof. My that's goodness, just genitals. But sure. genitals are an indicator of the rest of the body. Yeah, what what, what you're made for, right? Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a key part of that. And and the yeah. processes, the processes mm -hmm. that produce those genitals, right? The, the the embryologic developmental processes that produce this bright separation between male and female. And it has to mm -hmm. be a bright line. It has to be a bright and clear separation because the more blurry it becomes, the less fertile the subjects become. And That's you're not true. generative any longer, right? You're no longer generating mm -hmm. another generation, right? So that it has to be a bright distinction. And that happens in, in the first instant of conception and it sets the course is this person going to be a donator of large gametes or a donator of small gametes is this person going to be ordered towards carrying the baby or just caring for the person who's carrying the baby all of these things includes mm -hmm. everything it includes the psychosocial processes of development the effect that androgens has on a male brain versus what estrogen has on a female brain yeah Every cell in your body screams that you are made for making yeah. big gametes and carrying babies or making small gametes and taking care of the person that's carrying that other person. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> Otherwise, gametes. we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. Especially gametes. if you imagine that we all got here by accident. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's so it's it's crazy. It's funny that you should go into gametes because that's. Zach, probably the guy who started the Paradox Institute, um, he he says gametes all the time. <laughs> so, <It's a> great <laughs> word. <laughs> um, Does he say gametogenesis so ever? Does he, ever... <laughs> he has, yes. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I'm encouraged to hear so, that. So <laughs> that's um, like one of the things that we joked about when we started becoming friends as we were oh. like, how do you like your gametes cooked? And we like made all these stupid like, egg <laughs> jokes. <laughs> Having scrambled that's, that's eggs just for breakfast. That's the kind of talk. Yes, that's the <laughs> kind of talk we we like around here. Is gammy. Um Okay, let's see. What other questions do we have? Oh, this is a good one. Who is eligible to define ethics, like medical ethics, generally? Well, medical ethics uh, is is based in um, moral realities. Any kind of ethics is based in moral realities. Uh, it's not that mo that morality is something contrived and socially conditioned or culturally adaptable. Or there are certain things that fit into that category. But at base, ethics is is rooted in moral realities about the the good of the person. Okay, and moral questions moral questions are decided at many levels, but fundamentally and foremost within the conscience of the person okay so the conscience is this interior dialogue mm -hmm. not just a one-sided dialogue i would propose to you but we'll just leave it at that for now <laughs> there's this interior dialogue uh -huh. that is that that if it's going to come up with the with a with the ethical moral answer it has to be informed a conscience must be formed in order to give good answers right you can't just have an ill-formed conscience that you know 
tries things out and we'll see what comes out the other end and plays fast and loose with other people and and is you know a situational in its in its determinations a, a well-formed conscience understands fundamental truths and if it doesn't seeks to form itself in those truths so so that's the first thing so who can opine who can offer an opinion about ethics well we're all called to that we're all called to mm -hmm. that the harder the questions become the more difficult it may be to form your conscience but the more more of a duty you have to do that you have a duty to form your conscience and in a question like this that duty resides in very large measure on scientific evidence scientific mm -hmm. truth the scientific method it's just scientific method is a gift to the world from the christian church right because the scientific method developed in that other massive gift to the world from the Christian church, the university. The university is a mm. child of the gospel. The university is based on the idea that faith and reason have to be in agreement because they are both sourced in the same truth and that the truth never changes because the truth is a person that never changes, Jesus Christ. Mm through whom all things were made. So so the university mm -hmm. recognizes that fact and recognizes that wherever you go in the world of philosophy, what we today call science, if mm -hmm. there's a disagreement with what you're discovering scientifically, with what you know in terms of the queen of all sciences, theology, you have to reconcile that difference because faith and reason have to agree. If they don't agree, either mm -hmm. your science is bad or your faith is unfounded. Pick one, mm. right? And so the university seeks to reconcile those things, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was the habit of persons working at universities to daily examine their conscience, the things we were talking about before. Do you ever question yeah. yourself when you go to work? Yeah, you better be questioning yourself, <laughs> especially if you're doing irreversible things to people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so who can opine on those questions? Well, we're all called to opine on ethics, but we're also charged with the duty of forming our conscience in the truth truths which never change and truths mm -hmm. that are revealed to us sometimes through scientific progress and sometimes by other means but the, but if you're onto the truth you're onto the good of persons and you get good results right good results mm -hmm. in medical yeah. care would include not mutilating people you're not doing irreversible <laughs> things to them right seeing their their yeah. flourishing and their resolution yeah. so that they can live the fullness of their life and not have to live with a burden of sorrow or anger or fear or anxiety. Mm -hmm. We have a duty. We have a duty to serve those people in the truth because right. charity that's not based in truth isn't charity at all. Mm -hmm. It's serving your sense of yourself maybe because you think you're charitable, but it's not serving the person because yeah. charity has to be based in clarity. Cl no, no clarity, no charity. Hmm. Let me conclude here. The definition of charity, serving the good of the other person, the definition of charity in the Christian mind is love of God, perfection in the love of God, evidenced by perfection in love of neighbor. That's what charity mm -hmm. is, right? So in both instances, you're serving unchanging truth, right? And so without serving right. the truth, you're not serving charity. That's simple. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up um, Christianity and science because we're so conditioned now societally to see them as independent things 
and that you can't no. possibly be scientific no. if you are a Christian. But so no. many scientific <laughs> advancements came from Christians and oh, yeah. academic advancements. Well, as it's well. an endless so stream it's, of it's really the examples are legion to see that now. Yeah, like yeah. societally, that that's like the idea, and I think part of this whole identity worship that we're seeing is because of like I think it's natural for people to graduate or gravitate towards um some kind of thing that is greater than just the sum of your parts basically um so yeah it, it is almost like this weird kind of a replacement or something for faith yeah. and spirituality it's a substitute it's a counterfeit that's right yeah um on what conditions do you say a person is not trans and deny surgery? So again, I think this is from someone who thought that maybe you were a gender affirming surgeon. Yeah. I didn't specify who you were sure. so that sure, I was sure, sure. to avoid getting little haters yeah. up in there. <laughs> so, so the way, to, to the way I would answer that question, of course, it's, and you could sort of glean that from what we've talked about before, mm -hmm. is that um, transgender is not a true human identity. Right. Mm. Persons are, are, are uh, self-identified as transgender, but it's not a true human identity. And it's certainly not a, a, a condition or, a, or a, a state of being that warrants medical and surgical modification, because the, the difficulty they're struggling with is not with the nature of their body, of their sexed self. The problem is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. one doesn't do medical mod body modification or surgical body modification to produce uh, a psychological result um, that's irreversible and, and damaging because you, you're not, it's, it's unethical to do cosmetic surgery that harms the person. Remember, cosmetic surgery is surgery in the service of the interior subjective life of the patient, right? right? And so what drives the surgery is the the likelihood that you're going to satisfy the problem that they're having. And the problem better be small and manageable, because mm -hmm. if it's a huge unmanageable problem, you really better not be giving them powerful medicines and surgery. Yeah. Because yeah. that's a huge... Boy, that's malpractice. I mean, it. I recently, like thought about this but it would be like someone who has um munchausen's coming in and being like well i believe i have cancer like right. i really believe it you aren't gonna see it but i know i have cancer i feel it in my heart i have known right. I've, I've had cancer for years and that's why i'm so sick all the time so you have to give me chemo or i'm going to die right yeah, and it, it, yeah, it's a bad idea. Bad idea to let the patient yeah. do all the diagnosing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's hard enough to do it after all years of training. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially if again they are so mentally unstable and threatening these things and have some other issues going on, then it's really irresponsible to put this person in charge of their their diagnosis. Yeah, that historically uh, was a really basic element in the training of plastic surgeons. Uh, I don't, maybe they've abandoned this now. I don't know how it's taught now because I, I haven't it been in the business training residence in probably the last five or six years. But uh, recognizing body dysmorphic disorder 
is one of the important steps. If you're going to offer cosmetic services, cosmetic surgery, aesthetic surgery, you have to understand that psychodynamic process because you're, you're, it's not in the service of the patient. And interestingly, uh, the most likely patient to physically harm a surgeon is a cosmetic surgery patient, male, who's undergone mm -hmm. a nose job, who has body dysmorphic disorder. This was proven by a, a, wow, that's a so friend specific. of mine, may he rest in peace, Dr. Mark Gorney, uh, who was the founder of a, an insurance company called The Physician's Company. And uh, he's wow. a plastic surgeon, ENT plastic surgeon, brilliant man, may he rest in peace. And what he discovered after founding this insurance company, he's looked at the, at the demographic profile of things that cause harm to his doctors who are, you know, on the policies. And what he discovered was an, a, a huge overrepresentation of murders of doctors, of surgeons who have done rhinoplasties on men. Wow. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's an example of the bad things that can result from doing surgery yeah. on body dysmorphic <laughs> persons. Right, because That's you're making really them this promise that they're going to resolve their struggles. Yeah, you didn't deliver, doctor. You promised. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, like we we know that certain a more extreme behavioral issues are more common in males. So, I mean, that we're a lot of trouble. Surprises me, but yeah, it surprises <laughs> me, but it also doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So that's that's really interesting. What Dr. This, Gorney this theorized was there. there was Dr. Gorney theorized about that fact was that that there's some uh, internal uh, uh, correlation in the mind of the man between his nasal appearance and his his sexual impotence. Really? That's what Dr. Gorney. Now, yeah. I don't know. He didn't present evidence. Yeah. That's anecdotal information. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's an expert opinion only. Hmm. No yeah. level three evidence there, but that's what he theorized. <laughs> was, was, was the rhinoplasty was an attempt to manage impotence. And hmm. when that wasn't satisfied, rage came and a lot of, a lot of doctors get harmed. Wow. I didn't even right? know rhinoplasties were that common in, in men. Well, they're not. Yeah. And in fact, so the default position, my default position through all my years of being a plastic surgeon was if I've got somebody on the schedule coming in for a rhinoplasty consultation, that's a man, he's body dysmorphic until proven otherwise. If I walk into the room <laughs> and I see an obvious deformity, I'll go, oh, this is no problem. Are you breathing through your nose? And if it's a problem, I don't have a problem. But if it's an otherwise handsome looking person or who has a totally congruent looking nose yeah. on their ethnic face or whatever, and they start getting emotionally overwrought about what they're hoping for your rhinoplasty. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Th th there's other issues here that I would be happy to refer you for, but I, I yeah. will not do your rhinoplasty. Wow. It's <laughs> kind of wild. Yes. Let's see. <laughs> do you have any relatives that object to what you do? And do your relatives even know what you do? Oh, I, I don't leave the secret of life. I have a very public life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All my relatives. And most of my relatives I get along famously with. That's um, great. You know, my, the Jewish side of my family, I'm the guy who went on to be a doctor. <laughs> they love me. <laughs> yeah. All right. So nobody's out there going, ooh, how dare you? No, the, the finger wagging generally comes from advocacy groups and, and uh, yeah you know, legal advocacy groups who have mm -hmm. massive amounts of money to spend in print and digital media who like to drag me out into public. It's okay. 
Yes, they do. I found some of those articles. But every once in a while, you know, every once in a while, the articles are, are even though the writing is, is just terrible misrepresentations, yeah. uh, the, the Huffington Post did an article about all of us, um, this group of professionals who testify in court on behalf of legislation to protect children. And they, they had one of these courtroom artists who did acrylic pencil mm -hmm. drawings that were really, really, really good. <laughs> what a perfect <laughs> representation of my friend, Mike Laidlaw, or my friend, uh, Quentin Van Meter, or, you know, Dr. Yeah. Cantor. This is really cool. So I've, I've aggregated them together into a beautiful little picture that I'm going to oh, hang on my wall. Know, it's, uh... in, it's, it's in the Huffington Post. <laughs> I didn't know that you know they Dr. Said terrible Cantor. things about us. Just terrible yeah. things. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's funny. Well, like, man, they really love to just smear people and make things up. They yeah, you, can, for, you, can, you can get a lot of yeah. clicks. Get a lot of clicks, get a lot of likes. Oh yeah. For Zach, they said something like uh that he there's a Reddit post somewhere that people like to link people to and they're like, Oh, who is this guy? And they're like, Oh, he's a trust fund golf boy who inherited money and yeah. he's funded yeah. by the heritage foundation and stuff and it's like yeah. the only people who who ever funded him were like his parents who helped him buy his first microphone sure. and camera he did sure. everything all by himself so yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. they will for, go for me, to lengths there was an article in the in the london daily mail uh and in the u.s version of the daily mail that that it was the same kind of drag the drag the expert witnesses through the mud, you know, and, and question course. our motives and stuff like that. But they had these caricature drawings of us, and the caricature drawing of me is really really bad. I mean, <laughs> I look like some kind of I look like a character from you know The Simpsons, the guy oh, who runs no. the nuclear the nuclear power plant or Smithers or one oh, of those. Oh, Mr. Anyway, Burns. Uh, and they, yeah. they speak about they speak about the breadth of my knowledge being limited to. You know, having an office in a strip mall and shooting Botox, so I'm going to get T-shirts made. Yes, that, that's the one I read. T-shirts made with that image underneath. It's going to say "Strip Mall Botox." Yeah, I'm going to sell like hotcakes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Have oh, if a patient ever wanted to reverse a surgery or detransition, would you feel responsible? Which again. That's assuming that you, you've done gender affirming surgeries, which you haven't. But if they did want to reverse the surgery that you've done, would you feel responsible or, or bad about that? Uh, well, first of all, feeling responsible as a surgeon comes in, in several forms. There's the responsibility that one feels if you've done surgery on somebody and you've gotten a bad outcome. And certainly doing a surgery that the patient regrets down to their bones that's a bad outcome. And so I would be terribly feel terribly responsible if I had a patient come back saying, I wish I'd never done this. And that's one of the key yeah. things we seek to avoid as plastic surgeons. But there's also the responsibility that, that, that you feel to a patient at the first consultation, at the first visit. There's, this, there's a sense of, I, I have to examine what I can offer this person to help resolve this issue that they're facing here. So there's that responsibility. And I have done reversal surgeries on transgender regretters. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and there's only so much of it you can reverse. And, and right. like, for example, reversing uh, chest feminization surgery in a, in a man who was trying to present as a female who got the effects of hormones and got the effect, you know, breast implants, mm -hmm. who, who, who suddenly realized this was a terrible thing that he'd done. And 
So I did his reversal. I took out his implants and later on I removed some of the residual glandular tissue. Um, wow. Yeah. You can't reverse the genital surgeries. Um, those right. are, those are permanent and irreversible. You can reverse facial aesthetic operations, but usually those are, you know, not that important to the patient by the time you get there. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I, and I feel I felt responsible when I got the call about this young man. Uh, if you have time for a story. Sure. Here's the story. I, I gave this presentation some years ago at, at, a, at a seminary in Denver, Colorado. And this was presented to, you know, school administrators, priests, whatever, seminarians. And uh, <clears throat> in that crowd was this priest from Kansas City. I didn't, you know, I didn't know that. But but anyway, so some years later, I'm in my office seeing patients and uh, my nurse comes in to the to the examination room and, and says, you know, before you go to see the next patient, there's a priest on the phone wants to talk to you about a patient. I thought a priest talking to me about a patient. That's an interesting story. Mm. Here's the story. 20, I think I'm going to say 23 year old young man um, was a high school dropout, completely mm. unchurched musician in a punk rock band selling drugs in a mm -hmm. long-term sexual relationship with a young woman, mm -hmm. um, basically, you know, living that life, um, his girlfriend leaves him and uh, his friends convince him that the reason she left him was because he's effeminate, that she recognized that inside he's really a woman and she didn't want to oh. stay with him and that you're really transgender. And they did a GoFundMe. Wow. They did a GoFundMe and they sent him to Thailand and in Thailand, in a single episode of care, he had everything. He had breast yeah. implants. He had a, a penile inversion vaginoplasty and then right. went home. And within, as I recall, I think it was within the year, within the year, he realized he'd made a terrible, terrible mistake and became suicidal. And he told me when I, when I first met him, actually, when I met him on the phone, he's, he told me, he said, Dr. Lappert, I had the pistol in my mouth. I had the pistol wow. in my mouth and my finger on the trigger. And he said, something stirred inside of me that made me want to say the name of God, he said. And he, and he did. He said, Dr. Lappert, when I said the name of God into that pistol, I felt as if I was talking into a microphone, into the heart of God. He didn't know who God was. He's completely unchurched, didn't know what that yeah. even meant. But there was a stirring inside of him to reach out like that. And so yeah. he put the pistol down, obviously, and he went off in search of who that God might be. Mm -hmm. And he just happened to be walking down, you know, in Kansas City, Missouri, there, walking down the street and saw a church. And he walked into that church, hoping to find out who God is, walked in and met a priest who happened to have been at a lecture I gave three years wow. early in, in Denver, who, who, who essentially brought him in and befriended him and accompanied him in his suffering and his sorrows to, to help him to understand what's going on in his heart, why this might have gone this way, help him to understand what was probably uh, a, uh, 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 issues on the autism spectrum that made it hard for him to understand other people's nonverbal cues and their signals. And their, maybe his girlfriend saw that and, you know, and they yeah. misinterpreted his autism to be, you know, another gender or something like Anyway, the priest accompanied him in all of that. And eventually that priest picked up the phone and said, I have a guy here. I don't know if you remember me. There's a, there's a young man yeah. here in my church who needs help. So we, 
he had no money. He had nothing, you know, because he was yeah. essentially nothing. His family was. So we arranged to bring him out to Alabama. And because he had no money, we were going to put him up. And my my wife was going to be his post-operative nurse because my wife is a nurse. Wow. We we're going to just take care of this, this poor soul after taking out his breast implants. And so he's sort of agonizing over that, not sure how he's going to get out to Alabama. He, he gives me a call about two weeks before a scheduled surgery date and says, Dr. Lappert, you don't have to worry about how I'm going to get out there, where I'm going to stay. My father is going to bring me. Oh my he had gosh. been estranged from his father. He was like the totally ruptured relationship with his father. But in the course of reconciling himself to this interior wound and this sorrow, it brought about the reconciliation of this young man with his father who brought him out to Alabama and, and we took care of him. And it's just the most... In, you couldn't invent stuff like this. The providence yeah. of God and the love that he has for people who suffer. It's just, um, yeah. yeah. That's a really powerful story. <laughs> I'm glad you're yeah. able to help him even just, just a little bit. Um, I, I know so many people who have gone through these procedures, have irreversible results, and I, I know there's nothing I can say, really. And their perseverance is so inspiring. Yes. So, yeah. And yes. <laughs> again, having voices like yours in this to talk about these realities and, and talk about like the facts that you, you can't get these things reversed. There are serious side effects. Like it, it's, it's so, so important because we just have these people being very flippant about it. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the screw tape letters. Yes, yes I have. Lewis. Absolutely. Letter, letter 11 covers flippancy and talks about how flippancy is like one of the most powerful tools to corrupt a soul of someone. Um, I see that so much in this. I see that in internet culture so much mm -hmm. that, that flippancy and, yep. And you know who yeah. you know who was one of the guiding lights for C.S. Lewis? Hmm. G.K. Chesterton. Well, now I have there to you are. G.K. <laughs> <G>. Chesterton <laughs> yeah. was one of the one of the lights that guided C.S. Lewis uh, and and his relationship with Tolkien and all of that. Wow. And Oxfordshire and that's yeah. amazing. I, I you should read Chesterton. Never heard of Chester. Oh, you're going to thank me one day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I will. I, yeah. I really love C.S. Lewis. Um, it's funny because I, I wasn't really much of a Christian. I had kind of a very complicated relationship with Christianity <laughs> because of my family. They're Jehovah's Witness and um, converted to that and stayed with it for some reason. Catholicism. <laughs> they went from Catholicism to Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Usually <laughs> and, uh, there's, yeah. Yeah. It is very, very strange religion. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but yeah, so then I, I recently have been um, going to church and things like that. Moravian church. Oh, um, yes. Sure. Yeah. My, my brother wanted to go start going to church and was curious yeah. about that. And yeah. I was like, okay. Like I, I've, always been more like agnostic and that sort of thing. And sure. um, I was more left-leaning and more like, eh, I don't know about Christianity. I've, I've heard a lot of things, but <clears throat> the more I've been actually like 
looking at the Bible and going to church and hearing things, it's like, oh, okay. So now I understand I have more context now for the things that people painted negatively. And I'm like, yeah. all right, I, well, I, yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. Well, that, um, well, God bless you on your journey. Uh, the Moravian, you. yeah, I, I, I understand the history of the Moravian church and, and, uh, and yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. Uh, actually, I, I try really, really, really hard not to curse, especially online, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Again, my brother, um, my brother has really driven that, um, home for everybody in the house. He's very sensitive about cursing. And, <laughs> uh, one thing I like to call people instead of like a curse word is an unleavened journey cake because unleavened journey cake journey because cake. <laughs> there's a, a little Moravian settlement where they, they talked about how they were so happy to build their first oven. Baking is very big for Moravians. And so they were so happy to build their first oven because now they wouldn't have to rely on unleavened journey cakes. <laughs> <laughs> how great. <laughs> That's a great. That's absolutely so like, that's hilarious to call somebody. Sure. Well, as it happens, so. I'm, I'm, I'm this this evening. I'm baking sourdough bread. Well, there you go. Yeah. A little no, bit I'm of Moravian in there. <laughs> yeah, I've had this little culture of sourdough now for a couple of years, and and oh, today's wow. baking day. <laughs> you can keep that going for a while. Oh, this it's like having a guest first. in the house. You got to step in there yeah. and feed them by the time. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, let's see. I have a few more. Do you have time or? Certainly. Certainly. Okay. Um, who is liable when a patient sues for malpractice? Well, so culpability in, in medical malpractice is, it can be a very complicated thing. Uh, mm -hmm. and there's, there can be culpability at various levels, right? So there can be culpability for, for making poor patient selection or, or making obvious mistakes like amputating the wrong limb or you know operating oh, yeah. on the wrong knee those are you know obvious things surgeon at fault but then so is the circulating nurse in the operating room who it was her duty to check the chart and make sure it's the correct knee if the anesthesiologist right. is part of his checklist too so now there's three people culpable then there's the hospital mm -hmm. that credentials that whole team right oh, and okay. and and essentially the lawyers will will um uh accuse anybody if if they yeah. have money and even remote tangential involvement, they'll name them in the lawsuit, and wow. and very often uh, the 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 people who are named in a lawsuit will be dismissed early because it's obvious that that they had no actual direct culpability, and then sometimes multiple people pay the price for bad things that happen. Yeah. In the case of transgender services, who is at risk here? Well, clearly the the endocrinologists, the pediatricians, the surgeons the hospital systems, um, the ins third party insurance companies that are that are actually paying for these services are that's I mean, who's being sued in Kaiser right now in California, there's two possibly a third by now, mm -hmm. uh, regretter females who are suing Kaiser, and uh, right. including the physicians, the the insurance company, which is what Kaiser is, and the hospital served by that insurance program. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of people who are at risk for malpractice, uh, suit. And that's really wow. what's going to turn the tide here because, um, it's just going to be unsupportable financially 
for people mm-hmm. to keep doing this to children, even while the world is discovering this terrible disaster that's being visited upon vulnerable people by these decisions, yeah, yeah. whether you're an, an insurance administrator or the surgeon holding the knife. There's a lot of blame mm-hmm. to go around here, right up to the academia yeah. that credentials these people and 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 drives yeah. the, the quote unquote peer reviewed journals. They have a responsibility uh. in this. How could you write an abstract that says scientific basis for doing these things when you know, as well as anybody knows, that levels of scientific evidence are important for making surgical recommendations? And you right. can't make surgical recommendations based on anecdotal evidence. You're responsible as well. And they've got right. to go after these university endowments, go after named okay. people yeah. like Pritzker, right? Yeah. Who naming yeah. rights to a medical school, pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry, transgender presentation themselves and encouraging okay. down to the grade school level with teaching materials, yeah. encouraging children to think this way. Yeah. They're all culpable. Yeah. Whether they'll pay and, for and, it, I don't know, but. Yeah. I don't know. I I hope so, but they always, yeah. you know, there's not, always I'm not holding a lot of hope. Yeah. The most vulnerable people in all of this are the, the providers, the doctors. Yeah the nurses, yeah. the counselors, the school nurses, the teachers, they've been dragged into this by the creden- yeah. this credentialing system that's run by the universities, right? The credential yeah. teachers. The teachers believe mm-hmm. they have to say these things or they'll lose their teaching credential. They're called. Well, yeah. And we've seen so often that these studies and things, like they don't keep track of participants who drop out. They outright yeah. omit certain statistics that aren't in their favor it it's absolutely crazy that this is going on to -hmm. the degree that it is it it's constantly like astonishing me like every time i look into it i'm just questioning more and more how it's possible and just seems like it just seems like somebody lied very confidently and then everybody else was like, oh, yeah, look how confident he is. He can't possibly be lying. Right. That's, that's, that's what so, expert opinion gets you. So they make the yeah. claim that, that, it, that it's evidence-based medicine. But mm-hmm. when you ask them for the evidence, they talk about their eminence, right? So it's not mm-hmm. evidence, it's eminence. So instead of talking about the scientific results, good, yeah. they're talking about the fact that they're Harvard trained, the fact that they write right. board questions for the National Board of Medical Examiners, or that yes. they write board questions. If you want to become a plastic surgeon, you have to answer this question my way. And so they're mm-hmm. the expert opinion. And, they'll, and then they'll, they'll actually cite themselves in court and say, well, the reason <laughs> we do this, the reason we do this is because that's what the recommendation of WPATH is. Well, it turns out the guy wrote the chapter in WPATH, so he's basically, <laughs> it's what we call in, in court, ipse dixit, that your evidence is because you say so. Well, yeah. that's not evidence at all. That's stupid. That's, that's circular. True. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Oh, man. <laughs> um, do you have any personal or professional guiding principles that inform the decisions uh, regarding cosmetic surgeries on children, and what are they? Like, have you performed any cosmetic surgeries on children? I imagine maybe very few and things like that. Very, very few. Uh, you could say, for example, that that um, well, there's a, there's a condition in women, excuse me, called Poland's syndrome. Poland's syndrome is a developmental anomaly where you have underdevelopment of one breast, usually mm-hmm. in association with uh, problems of development of the pectoral muscles and in the, sh- the, the limb girdle. 
And so Poland mm -hmm. syndrome, it can be it can be a minor presentation or a major presentation. If 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 a young lady, a young girl comes in with, you know, who's uh, 16 years old, who has massive presentation with absent breast on one side and large breast on the other side, mm -hmm. you could look at that and say, well, this is purely cosmetic because it's just her appearance and how it makes her feel. She's fully functional. So you could argue with me and say you shouldn't offer surgery to her. Uh, and mm -hmm. you could make a case for delaying surgery. You know, you have to look at the cases individually. But if I can offer her a remedy that that presents little risk to her, it's a reasonable thing to consider. Uh, on the other hand, a 16-year-old girl who is like planning for her junior prom, who wants to wear a slinky little dress and have large breasts. <laughs> yeah, man, just, <laughs> no, that's, that's not going to happen. That's not going to yeah. happen. A child yeah. with a wild asymmetry of their ears, like they've got one massive lop ear that hangs out here and flat on the other side, particularly in a young girl who who doesn't have long hair, you know, who doesn't can't hide mm -hmm. it under her hair because she's got curly hair. Um, yeah, I'd consider it because I can I can do that pretty safely and only takes me about 20 minutes to do. Yeah, okay. I'd consider that. But if the parents came in saying, I, I hate the look of my daughter, would you change the appearance of her ear? Mm. I'd say ma'am, we have other things to talk about right now. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. cosmetic surgery in children, the default position is no. Okay. But there are special cases sometimes that are worth considering. Um, okay. You can say, for example, the, the nasal deformity from a cleft lip. Mm -hmm. You do an initial correction when you repair the cleft, but very often by the time they reach early adolescence and their face is growing, the deformity will become really obvious and it's, it's, it recalls attention to itself. I can fix that with very little risk to the young person, you know, who might be 14 years old. And it's mm -hmm. a normal, it's a common part of the long-term care of facial clefts. It's a, it's a cosmetic operation, but I'm going to do that for them. Yeah. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. What does do no harm mean to you? Primum non nocere. Yeah, do no harm. It's 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 one of the fundamental informing principles of what it means to be a physician, right? And it's mm -hmm. it's it's a fairly self evident thing that whatever you choose to do for the person, the first and foremost important thing is to do not harm them, pursuing a result that you think you're going to get. Okay, mm -hmm. we certainly take risks sometimes on behalf of patients, particularly when they're in extremis, right? To open somebody's chest to manage a, you know, a, a penetrating chest wound, it's a huge risk. It's a life-saving right. intervention, right? Yeah. Uh, but so you could say, well, cutting somebody's chest open is a harm to them. Well, yeah, you better be prepared to manage the consequences of a thoracotomy, yeah. anesthesia, resuscitation, all of those things that you have to attend to. But mm -hmm. the harm was with the expectation of, a, of, a, of a, a, a greater good, the preservation of life, the preservation of a limb, whatever that may be. Um, so primum non nocere, first do no harm, has that as a, as a guiding principle. That, but the, the first question you should ask yourself is, am I going to harm this person trying to do this for them? Or am I, gonna, if I, am I very likely to do them good? And that's where the consent issue is that came up at the beginning of our conversation. That's the kind of information you have to be able to mm -hmm. present to the parents when you're, when you're recommending their child for surgery is, what is the likelihood that I'm going to do them any good? What's the likelihood yeah. that I'm going to do them any harm? And this mm -hmm. is the reason why Great Britain, Sweden, Norway, Finland, pretty much soon France, Italy, 
everybody is abandoning doing this to children because time has shown us that the, the benefit from it has not been demonstrated, but the mm-hmm. harms are so evident and so consistent, right? The primum mm-hmm. non nocere, don't do that. And so yes. they stop. They, they no longer do that in, in Great Britain. The National Health Service issued a, a guidance recommendation that essentially says the only way you're going to do this to children is under an experimental protocol, and you better have a, a very high likelihood of doing them some good. And experimental mm-hmm. human investigation like that is guided by the Nuremberg principles, among others. And mm-hmm. so you better have pretty strong and compelling evidence for doing this to children because the harms are lifelong and evident. Yeah. And the benefits are not demonstrated. Yeah. So they don't do it anymore. They go away, went back to cognitive behavioral therapy, play therapy, family therapy, mm-hmm. all of those things that gave us that 92% resolution rate. Yeah. That's why those kids got better was because they were getting yeah. care and the care worked. And and, and the, the, the foundation of that care, cognitive behavioral therapy, the foundation is keep that child in contact with the truth. Keep yes. them in contact with the truths of their life. Yeah. Seek for the, the areas where they've misinterpreted events in their lives that cause them mm-hmm. to not believe certain things or believe other things. Look for actual yeah. events of harm that, that, that has come to that child, but always keep them in contact with the truth because that's where your hope lies. Your hope lies in the truth that animates your humanity. Yeah. And I was reading a case study of a little boy um, from a doctor who ended up affirming this boy as he got older because he was presenting with autogynephilia very young. He was six years old when he was coming to the clinic and it was because he had like this odd fixation with his mother and try to like touch her sexually and was like carrying around lingerie all the time and things like that. And the father was not a gynephile and the entire case study totally glossed over like that this could potentially be like some serious sexual abuse going on some serious things that this kid was exposed to that made and it it was so upsetting to read that they just missed it or or weren't even looking at it as a possibility and and i i just i didn't understand like it was so irresponsible i didn't get it at all and it it was very upsetting in some jurisdictions, to ask questions like, is there abuse? Uh, you know, this, is this autogynephilia something that he's sort of inherited from the family dynamics? Uh, all of those questions. In some jurisdictions, you'll lose your license for asking them. And so yeah. what will happen is the professional will defer, he'll punt. He'll punt it down to a social worker. And the social worker has an algorithm. And you check the box. And the social worker generates the referral to the pediatric endocrinologist. And nobody's responsible for any of this stuff because they don't have time. They're, they're afraid for their, their own credentials, all of that stuff. And, the, and the, the children are sort of handed down this industrial process and no one will take responsibility yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping that changes because this is wildly irresponsible. Um, let's see. How much pressure do you feel to accept clients? or do procedures? And have you ever been sued for refusing? Uh, I feel no pressure. And I've never been sued for anything. That's good. <laughs> That's really good. That's <laughs> impressive, I think. 
Let's see. What measures do you take to ensure that patients aren't suffering from a form of dysphoria and not merely um, gender or anorexia issues? Uh, well, it sounds like um, the question has to do with how do we how do we make a correct diagnosis when people present mm -hmm. with unhappiness, dysphoria, uh, or mm -hmm. other issues like anorexia, both of which are obviously psychological conditions. Um, right. So coming to the, to a plastic reconstructive surgeon with those conditions, clearly that visit's going to be more pastoral in terms of finding out what this person's struggling with and who could best help them with that. It's certainly not going to be surgery um, mm -hmm. for the reasons we talked about before. Yeah, but but it's our duty to make a correct diagnosis. That's the first step, obviously. And that's the that's one of the fund, foundational problems with gender dysphoria is, first of all, it's not a diagnosis. And even if it were, nobody makes the diagnosis except the patient. So it's not yeah. a diagnosis at all. It's a, it's an expression of an interior feeling that they have, which is obviously interesting, especially if that feeling is causing them sorrow, loss of function, isolation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, all of those things that need help, but the help that is needed there is certainly not hormones and surgery. So, and 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 we know it's not hormones and surgery because we know what gender dysphoria is. We know what gender mm -hmm. identity disorder is. We know what body dysmorphic disorder is. We know what obsessive compulsive disorders are. Mm -hmm. We know what uh, you know delusional thought processes sound like when you talk to a patient. Yeah. And, uh, you know, delusion is, you know, when I use the word delusion, there's always this risk that it's going to be misinterpreted as a pejorative term that I'm insulting people for right, saying that yeah. what they think is delusional. But delusional is an actual objective condition that has a three diagnostic criteria. And the diagnostic criteria are that the idea is held fixedly. It's what we call a fixed firm belief. And that's one of the criteria that gender clinics use in saying, oh, yeah, the diagnosis mm -hmm. is gender dysphoria because they're right. insistent, consistent, and persistent. Insistent, yeah. consistent, and persistent are descriptive, redundant uh, descriptive terms about fixed firm beliefs. The person has a fixed mm -hmm. firm belief. The second criteria is you can't talk them out of it. You can't talk them out mm -hmm. of it because they're not accessible to objective argumentation. Why? Because it's an irrational idea that they have about that, why they're sorrowful or why they feel afraid. It's an irrational idea that they have. So it's a fixed, firm belief, not accessible to objective argumentation. And the third diagnostic criteria is it's impossible. Mm. It's that simple. It's impossible yeah. that, 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 a, that a person who has a Y chromosome in every somatic cell of their body is, in fact, a woman. Mm -hmm. That is an impossibility. Right. So they meet the criteria for delusional thought processes, which is what drives obsessive compulsive coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a there's there's that that thought that they obsess with that leads to compulsive behaviors all ordered toward managing an interior sorrow or fear or anxiety. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely interesting. But I talk about this sometimes, but this idea that, oh, well, it's, it's real because it's been around forever. And it's like, well, a lot of psychological issues so homicide. have been around for like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's not just say like, yeah, that's 100% real because it's been like, no, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, a lot yeah. of delusions have been around for a long time. Let's not, sure. uh, 
yeah, just yeah. saying that that's criteria for being real. No, no, yeah, no. All kinds of infirmities or or emotional poverties or you know objective infectious illnesses. There's all kinds of things that have been around for a long, long time, mm-hmm. and so their longevity doesn't mean that that's a mark of health. The no. fact that people have always there's always been a subset of people who have cross sex self identification that doesn't yeah. make it a condition of health. It's any more than the saying that there've always been cancer patients. We shouldn't do anything about it because it's always been there. Are you, what are you nuts? I, I, yeah. And I, I think there's, there is a lot of weird issues with language. Like people will say things like, oh, you're making a judgment when you say something is a disorder or when something is a delusion. And it's not a judgment. It's just an observation. It's, it's just a descriptor for what it is. It's not well, a judgment is, though. Like, like a moral I judgment, that- I mean. I would suggest that it is a judgment and and we're mm-hmm. called to make judgments all the time. We're not called to judge people. We're called to mm-hmm. judge the realities of life. You know, you can objectively judge homicide. You can objectively judge right. theft. You can objectively yeah. judge all kinds of things. And we have to do it all the time. But like we talked about before, we need to form our conscience so that we can understand things that, that might not be as easy to understand as a homicide. Uh, mm. Certainly, when you're talking about the interior life of, of people who are suffering, uh, you need to you need to form your intellect and your conscience to understand some of those problems. Sometimes, uh, yeah. the, the the lack of accessibility to the cause doesn't mean that it's a condition of health. The fact that, for example, you can't some people claim that you can't change another person's attractions. Right? They'll say, "Well, you can't change their attractions." Uh, their desires. You can't change their desires. I would argue that's not true, but let's say that it is. You can't change their desires. Well, that doesn't make it a, uh, the fact that you can't change it doesn't make it a condition of health. There was a Mm -hmm. time when you couldn't do anything about cancer. Now we can. Mm -hmm. There was a time when we didn't understand the germ theory. You know, Robert Koch hadn't been born yet. We didn't understand how germs cause disease. So, so those things were inaccessible to us. The fact that they were inaccessible to us doesn't make them health. They just mm-hmm. make them a problem that we haven't yet resolved. It doesn't mean we don't offer them love and care and concern and then the best we have to offer them. We don't just ignore mm-hmm. them and say, well, you know, uh, some kids are born with cleft lips and, you know, that's how God wanted them to, with a cleft yeah. face. We're not going to do anything about that. that. That's stupid, too. Yeah. <laughs> that's really stupid. <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the uh, germ theory. I read um, something a while back where it was surgeons used to leave themselves all bloody and covered and stuff because it was like a mark of like how many surgeons or surgeries they had done. And they were like, oh, look how hard I've been working. And they just go from patient to patient like that, getting like messier and messier and end up like transmitting (laughs) disease unknowingly. Because hygiene wasn't really like a thought. Right. Well, puerperal sepsis, the story of pre-birth or or peri-birth infectious death of new mothers, puerperal sepsis. Mm -hmm. It took a while before, I think it was Semmelweis who who made the connection that if you just washed your hands between patients, you'd have (laughs) less women dying of puerperal sepsis. And, And, you know, that was one of the clues. Uh, that led to you know the, the the gradual formulation of the germ theory, but uh, yeah. All right, three more questions to go. <laughs> oh boy! You're, you're okay. Here. Finally, yes, I know. <laughs> 
Um, what about follow-up protocols? Is that something that a surgeon is encouraged to do? Like, are there follow-up protocols? You are duty-bound to follow up your patients. In fact, one of the evidences of malpractice is patient abandonment. Mm. And some problems require longer-term care than others. Um, for example, if you're doing cleft palate surgery on babies, you better be working long-term follow-up here, sir, because if you're not, you're just serving yourself. You're not serving that child, right? Mm -hmm. Duty to follow up. And that's one of the hallmarks of the, the bad work that's being done in, by gender services. If you, if you read the American literature in particular, the American literature is horrible. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll present in a peer-reviewed journal case collections, you know, single center study of, say, you know, 70 consecutive transgender chest masculinization surgeries or whatever, pick mm -hmm. whatever. And you'll look in there and you'll see that, well, they started with 70 and they finished with 50. What happened to those 20? Why did they yeah. drop out? Are they dead? Yeah. They killed themselves? Did they have such a bad result? They don't want to ever see you again. That you need to be, that's a high, high dropout rate. Uh, yeah. How were the patients chosen? And, and at the end of it, they'll have anecdotal evidence, case collection, worthless to inform surgical decision-making, but it'll get published in a peer-reviewed journal. And, mm -hmm. and this, is, this is the reason why Europe turned it around. Anyway, you look at those publications, and if they follow a patient longer than th three years, it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. The average yeah. study that they publish will follow patients for a year, year and a half, and they'll assess their results using what are called quality-of-life surveys. Mm -hmm. Quality-of-life survey is a, is a test instrument that's typically given to cosmetic surgery patients, which is what you would mm -hmm. expect. Since mm -hmm. the entirety of the result is driven by the subjective life of the patient, the only right. metric they're using is quality of life survey. They claim that it lowers suicide rate. They claim that it improves functionality, all the rest of that stuff, but they never study it. They'll publish wow. a one-year, two-year follow-up and never ask the question, <laughs> well, did I drop 20 patients? Did I, did I lose 18% of my patients because they killed themselves? They don't even want to know. They'll just give them yeah. a, a satisfaction survey and say, yeah, it's working. Look at all the success we have. We followed these people for two years. One patient we even followed for three years. Can you imagine? That's how certain <laughs> we are about this. Scientifically based. Yeah. Rubbish. Total rubbish. Yeah. And we've heard too that like, oh, I just, I stopped talking to my my doctor because I had such a bad result. I didn't want to talk to them or right. they right. didn't return my calls. Body. I've heard that so often. I've called the clinic. I've told them I wasn't happy. I told them I'm having pain and complications and weird drainage and the doctor isn't getting back to me. I'm really scared. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I've also heard of friends of mine who were detransitioned that they have no sensation or right. are constantly for a year or more still leaking fluids. Yep. Seromas. And they have to mm -hmm. constantly be covering with bandages and that they don't know who to go to. Right. It is terrifying. That's going to be the basis of many of the lawsuits right there. The, 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 the patient abandonment is, you know, it's, it's at this point, it's just a question of signing the check for the harms mm -hmm. because a jury will see that and say, this is obvious malpractice doesn't meet the, the beginnings of a standard of care for a surgical patient. And right. at that point, it's just a matter of the insurance companies negotiating a settlement because it's indefensible, yeah. completely indefensible. Yeah. 
What are the ethical parameters when it comes to patients seeking to heavily modify or even remove healthy body parts they're unhappy with? The answer is no. Okay. <laughs> it's that simple. You, you, yeah. you, you don't just remove healthy body parts because the patient wants to do that. Right. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you could make a claim that it, it's supernumerary digits. If the person has a, a healthy extra little finger, yeah. you know, if, if it affects the functionality of their hand, obviously taking it off, it's really a cosmetic problem most of the time. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you, you, you'd, want, you'd want to do that. <laughs> yeah. There are some people, there's one guy in particular on um, social media that has completely taken off the cartilage of his nose, put in a bunch of subdermal implants and sure. tattooed himself up and even inked his eyes and everything so right. they're yeah. totally black. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. Any, any surgeon participating in that sort of thing, if the yeah. guy should ever change his mind, culpable. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, what we would call I, in plastic I he surgery. Also ears. <laughs> in plastic surgery, we call those kind of providers bottom feeders. Yeah, they're, I they're preying, see why. They're preying upon. They're preying upon vulnerable people. Yeah, I I know there are people who say like, "Oh, just let adults do whatever they want," and that sort of thing. But if he's mentally ill, if he's got some other issues going on. I don't know that that's no ethical. we have a duty we yeah. have a duty as physicians yeah this is the reason why a physician even in antiquity is a is is a is a, a vocation it's a profession actually i should say it's a profession you know there's there's only a few professions according to sort of the 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 definition from antiquity is that it's a it's a life's calling in which other people's lives depend Right. So so if you're if you're a, a, a military leader of men, other people's lives depend upon you doing things correctly. If you're a lawyer, if you're a lawyer, other people's lives depend upon you doing that. If you're an engineer, other people's lives depend. Certainly as a physician, other people's lives depend upon what you're doing. And that mm -hmm. that is a, a, a profession. It's called a profession because you're making solemn profession of fidelity, of faithfulness to the good of other people, people you might ne never meet, you know, how mm -hmm. tight are you tightening the bolts on, on that airplane you're building that people are walking right, onto yeah. to fly to remote places. You've got some grave responsibilities there. And so physician, clearly you, you make an oath. You actually make an oath to do no harm, you know, mm -hmm. all of those things. And so, so the responsibility to do no harm is, is a is a is a public profession and one must yeah. never take vows lightly yeah it's interesting people don't seem to really see doctors that way like surgeons plastic surgeons that way but you are <laughs> yeah but that's that's what it is i mean it's not just like getting your hair colored or something like that like Correct. this yeah, is no. this is something yeah, this is someone who ethically is in charge of care of another human being. And it's an entire field that's dedicated to that. So it's really strange that we just see it again flippantly. Like this person can just come in, do yeah. some crazy stuff to my body. And that's yeah. totally cool that they're kind of doing that for people. And 
where's the responsibility in that field? Like it's a serious thing. So, all right, here's the last question. What have you learned from past patients who were not happy with their results? And how do those experiences inform your work now? Well, in, in every patient that, that you see, uh, regardless of how, how complicated the course of care has been, it may be simple, it may be complex, it may be as simple as you know removing a little cancer from the forehead and, and sewing it up using plastic surgery techniques. If you get an adverse scar, if the patient has you know some discomfort or something like that, every every patient you see you have to look out for some level of dissatisfaction and you know thankfully most people are you know you've you've counseled them well before the surgery they have reasonable expectations you've gone over the possible bad things that could happen you've sort of sworn to them that you're going to take care of whatever happens and that you know you'll do the very best you can all the way along and and if you reach the end of your rope you promise them that you'll refer them to somebody else you should gladly mm -hmm. refer them to other doctors, not hiding your results, but seeking the yeah. good of that person. You call your colleague and say, look, I did this operation. You had a pretty good result, but there's this dissatisfying thing. I don't know how to solve it. Would you mind seeing mm -hmm. the patient? You have to be humble. You have to be humble mm -hmm. and you have to examine your results and you have to examine your motives and you have to examine your techniques. You have to keep an eye on all that stuff because you yeah. have a sworn duty to the good of that person that just walked in your door. That's what it means to raise your hand and say, I solemnly swear that I will dedicate mm -hmm. my life to the good of other people by the, the very best I can offer them. Yeah. Whether they're calling at two o'clock in the morning or just walked <laughs> in as the first morning appointment. Wow. It's the same, it's the same vow. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for answering all those questions. There were a lot sure. of them. Sure. I've, I've <laughs> really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope this is Me the start too. of a long-term friendship. Cynthia. Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. I And then you're giving me a little reading list that I'm sure. writing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Orthodoxy. Yeah, it's, I, have yeah. A whole, I have a whole section of my library here <laughs> dedicated to Chesterton because he's so fun to read. And he's, and, and he's always coming up with 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 beautiful paradoxical ways of looking at the truth <laughs> well, that you're going to love. <laughs> hey, that's, yeah, the gender, the and, gender and paradox was, was Zach's first book and yeah. we've got the Paradox Institute. So, I mean, that's pretty popular. With us. Can't lose. Yeah. 